Thanks, Joe. Hi, guys. Just grab one of the, uh, the sheet that you should have been given. And um, I'm going to find my notes. Here they are. Um, let's have the timeline up, could we, Matt, of where we are in our little series in church history. We've uh, spent some time in the early years uh, thinking about uh, early controversies about the person of Jesus and what the scripture is. Uh, we've seen Augustine's work, which dominated uh, quite a lot of the the intervening years until the 16th century Reformation and that rediscovery by Martin Luther of the gospel of grace uh, and how we're saved by faith alone and not through uh, the sacraments, not through our participation in, in the church. Today we look at the Puritans. You'll see there's a bit of overlap uh, between the uh, European Reformation and uh, the Puritans, 1530-ish to 1689-ish. Um, uh, and these guys are living in, in England mainly uh, during the time... Uh, of uh, the Reformation just after. Um, but I wonder, before we sort of delve into them, what you think when you hear the word Puritan? Uh, for most people, it conjures up images of stern, forbidding men and women, dressed all in black, holding pitchforks, burning books, and generally being cross. Is that, is that fair? Uh, in modern English, the word puritanical is another word for no fun at all, isn't it? Uh, we think of them as sort of harsh, unyielding, sticklers for detail, legalistic, just a bit grim, really. That's what we think of when we hear the word Puritan, I think. It won't surprise you to know that that image of the Puritans is really desperately unfair. That's not what the Puritans were like at all. In fact, as Joe said, they were older brothers and sisters who we can learn a lot from, and it's because of their efforts, often under intense persecution, that we do church the way we do it today. And we can learn particularly from them about how we live as Christian people. We'll see why as we go along. Let's have a think, first of all, about history. Who were the Puritans? Well, when we left things last week, the Reformation was beginning to sweep through Europe. People were hearing about the gospel of grace, which liberated from that, from that cycle of sin, confession, penance, and it gave them real assurance in their salvation. The Bible was being translated and printed in the languages people actually spoke which is always a help, and the power and authority which had sort of accumulated in the popes and the priests and the institutional Roman Catholic Church was beginning to be seen by many as wrong and unhelpful. See, the Reformation in Europe was a grassroots movement, and it came over, to, uh, came over the channel to this country quite early on. In particular, it took root in Scotland through a guy called John Knox, and it started establishing in England through guys like William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into English. <clears throat> but as we think about the English Reformation, there's something different about the shape of it than the shape of it in, the Euro in mainland Europe. As you'll know if you've watched Wolf Hall or done any reading on the Tudor period at school, I was thinking about my school history lessons. We just did the Tudors like every year. Is that still true? Is that still true, guys? No, they do, do interesting things as well, don't they? Just like the Tudors and then World War II and the Tudors and then World War II. Anyway, I know a lot about the Tudors. Um, I don't know, I've forgotten it all. England's break with the Roman Catholic Church wasn't because of like a pure concern for doctrinal and moral reform. It was mainly because Henry VIII fancied Anne Boleyn uh, and wanted a bit more power for himself. Uh, by the way, that's often how God works. We can get a bit sort of uh, worried about that, that somehow uh, that the Re Reformation in England seems a bit sort of uh, grubby because it was all about power and sex. And, uh, but actually... Read the Bible. God works through the mess of human life and the mess of political situations and the mess of actually pretty bad decisions to work his purposes out, doesn't he? Um, but 
coming back to the history, Henry VIII himself really wasn't convinced by Luther's theological reforms. He sort of formed the Church of England and declared himself the head of the Church of England, but he remained really a Roman Catholic in terms of belief all his life. Even if Anne Boleyn was probably a convinced evangelical, as was Thomas Cranmer, his Archbishop of Canterbury. And so Henry wanted the church to retain Roman Catholic theology, things like the Roman Catholic Mass, where the bread and wine are thought of as literally becoming the body and blood of Jesus and being sacrificed again on the altar by the priest. And to be honest, for most people in the country, that was absolutely fine by them. That's what they'd grown up with. That's what they were used to. And people don't like change. We don't like change, do we? And there's a fair bit of resistance to change among uh, the people of England. Well, what happened next? Well, over the next few years, Henry's son, Edward VI, came to the throne. He was a convinced evangelical, and he pushed through some really important church reforms. Um, even as a very young man, he ascended to the throne at, someone tell me, I've forgotten, 14? 13. 13. Thanks, Steph. Very young man, but very convinced uh, a Christian, very convinced evangelical. Unfortunately, he died very young. He died at about 17. Devil tell you the details. Um, and when that happened, Henry's fiercely Roman Catholic daughter, Mary, came to the throne, and she started a vicious campaign of persecution against evangelicals. She had 280 Protestants burned for their beliefs. So you've had Henry, who's sort of Catholic, Edward, who's Protestant, Mary, who's Catholic. And then in 1558, uh, Mary's half-sister Elizabeth came to the throne. You remember Elizabeth? She was a really shrewd politician, and like many shrewd politicians, she was good at pleasing everyone. She negotiated what's called the Elizabethan Settlement. It was sort of a halfway house between Roman Catholic theology and Reformed theology. She published a new prayer book to be used in the Church of England, which was basically deliberately ambiguous. If you're a Roman Catholic, you could be sort of happy-ish with it. If you're an evangelical, you could be sort of happy-ish with it. And this is where the Puritans come in. They weren't satisfied with sort of happy-ish. There was far too much ambiguity, far too much room for the sort of Roman Catholic theology which they knew was contrary to Scripture and which was devastating, as we saw last week, for people's confidence and their assurance. And so they pushed for greater reform within the Church of England. And actually, over the next few decades, they, they briefly got it. England was pushed into civil war. Um, long story short, the monarchy lost. And for a, for a while, the Puritans were able to push through lots of reform under the rule of Oliver Cromwell. But in 1660, the monarchy was restored under the Catholic Charles II. It flips backwards and forwards. And in 1662, Charles pushed through the Act of Uniformity. It said that every single church minister in England must assent to every single thing in the prayer book and practice it and teach it or else resign. This was the big turning moment for the Puritans in England. Around 2,000 ministers resigned on one day, 24th of August, 1662. Just imagine that for a moment. 2,000 vicars suddenly resign on one day. They lose their jobs, their livelihoods, their ministry, their homes. And that's really the beginning of a large movement that we're a part of, the nonconformist churches, that is, churches who are not part of the official state church, the Church of England. Over the next few years, various laws were passed to try to stop churches like ours meeting. It became illegal for more than five people to gather for a religious meeting outside of the Church of England. 
It became illegal for ministers of nonconformist churches to come within five miles of the towns they used to serve. It became illegal for them to teach in schools. That was still illegal in 1812, actually. I think it was true that nonconformist ministers couldn't go to Oxford or Cambridge until 1920. That was all sorted out eventually. Um, but it was a mark of how seriously the Puritans took their faith that they were willing to suffer persecution in this way. That's the sort of rise and fall of the Puritans. That's who the Puritans were. What did they believe? Well, like we saw with the Reformation last week, Puritanism was all about a return to God's word, the Bible. So first of all, the Puritans believed firmly that God's word defines the faith. They were passionate, as Luther was, to only teach what the scriptures said. And that meant that the heart of their ministry was teaching the word of God. The Puritans were dead against having an altar in the middle of their church building. Going to most Church of England churches, most, not all, you'll see a, a, an altar at the beginning. All Roman Catholic churches have an altar right in the middle. We have a pulpit, and that's because of the Puritans. They said, we need the word of God in the middle. So they put a pulpit in the middle of their churches, front and center, with a whacking great, normally massive, open Bible on it to show that it was God's word that should be at the very center of their church. And they valued two things in their preaching particularly. One was faithfulness to scripture. The other was plain speaking. So first faithfulness, a guy called Anthony Burgess said this. On the screen, yeah. Ministers must dress every sermon at the mirror of God's word. That's a nice idea, isn't it? Sort of looking in God's word and making sure you, you match. They must preach as they read in scripture. And Burgess said it was so important to only speak what God had said for three reasons. One, for God's sake, because we're working for his glory and he won't think lightly of us replacing his word with our own. Two, for man's sake, because only God's word has the power to nourish people and bring them to life. Why would you want to speak your own words in the pulpit? That's got no power whatsoever. Speak what God has said. And three, third reason why you want to be faithful to Scripture is for the preacher's sake. Because he needs to remember that he's a servant, he's not the Lord. And it's spiritually dangerous to bring your own words and ideas into the pulpit. Burgess said that preachers were given a ministry, not a magistry. They were to serve, not to put themselves out there as Lord, you see. That's faithfulness to Scripture. The other thing the Puritans valued was plain speaking. That doesn't mean they dumbed anything down, what it meant was that they aimed to teach people not to dazzle them with their cleverness. Most of these guys were seriously bright, but when they preached, they tried to speak in a really sort of homely, common style. And that's because they believed two things firmly. One, that the message of Jesus was for everyone, not just for clever people. And two, that their job was to point to Jesus and not draw attention to themselves. So another guy, John Flavel, Flavel, never quite sure, I'm going to go with Flavel, uh, said this. A crucified style best suits the preacher of a crucified Christ. Prudence will choose words that are solid rather than florid. That's flowery. This is the problem with the Puritans, by the way, is that they're, they're, they're speaking very plain style for then. It doesn't really work for it. Anyway, uh, we have to sort of do a bit of translation. As a merchant will choose a ship by a sound bottom and capacious hold rather than a gilded head and stern, do you see? Don't look pretty, just tell us what the word says, is basically the message. I'm sure he'd be horrified with that little paraphrase, but that's what we're going with. Another Puritan, a guy who gloried in the name of Increase Mather, said this about his father's preaching. His father was called Richard, a lot less interesting. Um, 
His way of preaching was plain, aiming to shoot his arrows not over his people's heads, but into their hearts and consciences. Puritans often got, occasionally were sort of criticised for being really sort of simple. People thought they were stupid. There's a guy called Richard Baxter. And the story's told of him. I'm not sure if this is true, but it's a good story. Let's go with it. Let's pretend it is. People used to say, you know, why you so, it's just really sort of, it's a bit common. Have you not got anything interesting to say? You've not got anything sort of intellectual? So he stood up and he preached the first five minutes of his sermon in Hebrew. And he said, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll try again. And he preached the next bit in Greek. <laughs> so, sorry, guys. Um, let me tell you. Preached the next bit in Latin. And he said, shall we just stick to English? <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> he just basically showed, look, I can do it. I'm just choosing not to. I'm choosing to be as simple as possible for the sake of my people. God's word defines the faith. Secondly, God's word orders the church. We've already seen that in their refusal to do communion in a way which could be misinterpreted as sacrificing Jesus' body and blood again, that they refused to do that. They wouldn't do, the, they wouldn't do the mass the way the Catholics did it, and they wouldn't even settle for any ambiguity there because they knew, they'd read in Hebrews 10, that Jesus' sacrifice was made once for all. The idea of sacrificing him again in mass just it couldn't happen. Romans 6, Jesus had been raised and seated in heaven. He'd never die again. So they, because they'd read that in Scripture, they, couldn't, they refused to do anything which denied what they'd read in Scripture, you see. And that extended to every area of church life. This is, I think, where the Puritans got their reputation for being sort of sticklers for detail and where people get annoyed with them. They wouldn't wear robes in church like some Anglican vicars do. If you're disappointed I'm not wearing a robe, terribly sorry. It's because of these guys. They didn't want to look like Old Testament priests wearing special robes to mark them out as special mediators between man and God. Why? Because they'd read the Bible. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus. And so they didn't want to look like mediators. They didn't want to look like a second class of people. They just want to look like everyone else. They were largely opposed to bishops, as in bishops ruling over a huge number of churches, because they saw in the Bible that the local church had the authority to govern itself, and it should be led by a number of elders. Do you see why this is a lot of the reasons, a lot of the thinking behind the way we do things here? And this all made people quite cross, because it looked like the Puritans were being needlessly picky and pedantic, and they wouldn't sort of let anything go. Uh, one Puritan preacher called Richard Rogers was criticised by a gentleman who said to him, Mr. Rogers, I like you and your company very well, only you are too precise. And Rogers said, Sir, I serve a precise God. We saw that, didn't we, in Nicaea. It's important to be precise because precision is about people's souls. It's not just being picky for the sake of it. It's about whether we're understanding Jesus properly. The Puritans firmly believed that God had told us the way he wants us to do church in his word. And these things might seem like secondary issues, things that are not too important, strange things to insist on and even to divide over. But the Puritans would say these decisions about things that aren't gospel issues are all about safeguarding the gospel. Does someone who preaches the gospel wearing a priestly robe deny the gospel? Well, no, not, necess not necessarily. If they're preaching the gospel, that's great. But is it helpful to preach the gospel wearing a priestly robe? Does it give the right impression of the gospel? Is it confusing to people? These are the questions the Puritans are asking. And they were determined not to let anything they did get in the way of the gospel. They were concerned that everything they did in church preached the gospel as well as everything they said. 
But if that all sounds a bit sort of stuffy and cerebral, the third big thing about Puritan theology over the page is that they believe that God's word dwells in the heart. God's Holy Spirit dwells in the heart of everyone who comes to faith in Jesus, and God continues to change his people through his word, to change their minds, their emotions, their wills, their behavior. That was what true Christianity looked like. The Puritans were very precise on theology, but the point of all that was to show people Christ clearly so they'd learn to love and praise and live for Jesus. And the Puritans were very concerned about patterns of ministry that denied that God's word dwells in the heart. John Owen, who was a Puritan preacher from Oxfordshire, who was a champion javelin thrower and flautist in his youth. So rejoice, javelin throwers and flautists. The future's bright. Uh, He used to talk about two dangers for the churches. On the one hand, it was easy, he said, to develop develop a ministry without the Spirit. That is, a sort of detached examination of God's word, very rational, very cerebral, which aims only to understand God's word and not to live it. In Owen's day, that was represented by a group of people called the Sassinians, who were sort of early liberals. They rejected quite a lot of the supernatural stuff in the Bible and just saw it as an interesting guidebook for life. And Owen and the other Puritans said, no, if the study of Scripture doesn't move us to humble love and worship of God, we've not seen Jesus at all. Instead, we treat the Bible as an object to be studied rather than as the living word of God. We puff ourselves up with pride. And guys, in a church where we take the word of God seriously and we do that kind of rigorous examination of the Scriptures ourselves, that is a real danger for us, that we can go away being proud of what we've learned and proud of what we've taught rather than humbly thinking, that was amazing. Our God is amazing. I need to love and serve and worship him and not magnify myself. But there's an equal and opposite danger to that, which is the spirit without a ministry. That was represented in John Owen's day by the Quakers, who emphasized experience and getting in touch with the inner light, and they downplayed or even bypassed scripture entirely. And we can see echoes of it in some charismatic theology today. We'll perhaps come back to this in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, But Owen was utterly convinced that the sword of the Spirit was the Word of God, as it says in Ephesians 6. Trying to read God's Word without humbly depending on God's Spirit is pointless. Trying to access God's Spirit somehow outside of God's Word is completely futile. And he summed it up like this on the screen. He who would utterly separate the Spirit from the Word had as good burned his Bible. There's just no point reading it. If you're going to read it without the Spirit, without prayerful consideration, without thinking about how it changes you, you might as well not bother. And all of that meant that the Puritans were resolutely practical in helping Christians live out their Christian lives. They wanted to make sure that the Scriptures were really applied to people and lived out, not merely believed. And so to conclude, I just want to talk you through two practical ways that Puritans did that. Let's start with this idea of putting sin to death. Um, John Owen uh, wrote a fantastic book called On the Mortification of Sin. It's well worth a read. It's not a very easy read, and I think Joe's going to recommend a book that says the same thing but shorter in a minute, which would be helpful. Um, but John Owen is thinking about what happens when we sin. Okay, we've sinned. That's what's up. What should we do next? And he wrote about 600 pages telling us what we should do next. This is a very, 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 very abridged version of it. Uh, of the advice he gives to the Christian who has sinned. What should they do? 
he says, okay, sit down and have a think. First thing you should think about is consider the guilt of your sin. Stop yourself excusing your sin or justifying yourself. So saying, oh, I was tired, I was stressed, he provoked me. Don't let yourself compare yourself to others. Don't get rid of any thoughts that says, well, I, I, I sinned, but at least I'm not as bad as him. Sorry, Joe, just went like that. At least not as bad as him or her. I wasn't, I didn't do that. He says, like, forget that. Consider that you're guilty. Just think about it. Forget comparing, forget self-justifying. Consider that your sin has made you guilty. He says, next, consider the danger of your sin. He says, well, think about what does the scriptures say about the danger of sin in Christian lives? It says that you can be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so much that you start walking away from Jesus. Think about that. Think about how awful it would be to walk away from Jesus. Think how dangerous sin is. He says, next, consider the evils of your sin. Think about what the scripture says about what sin does. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It, makes our, it can make our ministry fruitless. It can jeopardize all the words, all the gospel work we're doing, all the things we're saying to other people about the glory of Jesus. If we deny that with our sinful, unrepentant, sinful lives, that's a great evil because it means that, humanly speaking, people might not become Christians. So it's getting us to sort of dwell on sin for a bit. Fourth thing to do, says Owen, examine your sin in the light of God's law. Think about God's holy law. Let yourself see that what you just did was illegal. It was illegal. It breaks God's holy law, and it ought to bring you under his condemnation. Five, examine your sin in the light of the gospel. To think, well, hang on a minute. Christ has died for you. He's given himself for you. He's dealt with you patiently and graciously. Is this what you're going to do to repay him? Is that... You know, he's trying to get us to, to feel the guilt of our sin, not just think, yes, I have sinned. It's very cerebral and doesn't really mean much. He's getting us to really feel it and think about it by dwelling on Scripture and letting the Spirit do the work of convicting us that what we just did was really wrong. Sixthly, cultivate a desire to be rid of sin. Pray that God would change your will. Remember we saw that in Augustine? We can't, we can't change what we want to do, but God can. So pray that God would change uh, our will so we don't want to sin like that dwell on the beauty of purity and the goodness of a holy life seventh thing he says is okay you might want to resolve after you've done this sin to not give any time to things which feed your natural temptations there are sins that we're naturally more prone to aren't there we know you all know that if you live the christian life a bit there are sins that particularly attract you he says well if things particularly attract you, you're not, you're not, that's not an excuse. What that means, you've got to be extra watchful in that area. Cut yourself off from things that are going to drag you in temptation. Eight, don't give any room for sin when temptation appears. You've basically experienced what it's like to go from temptation to sin. Well, next time you recognize that temptation, just clamp down on it. Don't dwell on it. Don't fantasize. Just back off when temptation appears. Resolve to do that. Ninthly, think about the greatness of God, says John. Consider how much bigger and better he is than you. Consider how much better he knows than you about what constitutes sin. Because that's one of the things we can do, isn't it? We can think, uh, well, God's word says it's wrong, but, you know, we wouldn't say this, but basically we say it's not. I, I don't think it is. I'm justifying myself. Why? Because I think I know better what sin is. Absolute nonsense. God knows better than we do. And the flip side of that, think about how small you are. Consider how much our thoughts are so much lower than his thoughts. Make yourself believe that he knows better than you. 
And this is a really key one, number 11. Don't be satisfied with peace until you've first been grieved. Why have the first 10 of these all been about dwelling on sin? Because John Owen knows how easy it is to just skip from I've sinned to I'm forgiven. I've sinned, oh, it's okay, I'm forgiven. And all we've done there is basically harden ourselves um, to what we've just done because that didn't really matter. It didn't really cost us anything. He's saying dwell on it, think about it, and don't let yourself just gloss over it. Number 12, now he says, okay, once we've got the, the felt the weight of sin, once we've been grieved by it, now we can consider the fullness of grace in the cross of Jesus. He's made full satisfaction for that sin. He died to bear the wrath for that sin. God is not angry with you because he's poured out his anger at Jesus. 13, consider Jesus' mercy as a high priest. Jesus suffered as we did. He's, he's, he's uh, been tempted in every way, and yet he's without sin. Therefore, he's ready to hear our prayers. There is mercy and grace there. We can go and pray to him, and he can sympathize with us. 14, consider Jesus' faithfulness in his covenant. He, this is similar to the logic we saw this morning. Jesus died for you. Do you think that he's not going to forgive you this? If, he can, if he's died for you, then he'll surely forgive every sin you, may, you commit. And then 15, once you've gone through that process... You can enjoy the relief the Spirit brings of knowing you're completely forgiven. Now, I don't know about you. When I sin, I don't go through this thought process very often. I just go, oh, that's bad. Ah, I'm so stupid. Oh, Jesus died. <clears throat> that's a shortened version. Not that much shorter. Um, I think it would be much better for me if I did this. I really felt this sin, took it to the cross, knowing full well the, something of the weight of it, and to feel God's Uh, forgiveness uh, as a result of really wrestling with it. Um, That's one thing I just commend to you, as even if you don't take all 15 steps, to to, to just think seriously about sin uh, and to to dwell on it and to learn how to fight it. Um, The second just helpful thing the Puritans put forward was the practice of biblical meditation. This is basically what you would do in a quiet time, okay? Uh, and the, the Puritans had a four-part uh, biblical meditation process, which I found really helpful. So I put a verse um, on there from this morning. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You come across that in your quiet time. What do you do? Um, well, here's what the Puritans did, would say, would recommend that you did. Firstly, they'd say, make sure you understand it. This is a really helpful insight The the Puritans would say, don't meditate on Scripture until you've understood it properly in context. Do the work, do the study, figure out what does this mean. And the reason for that is it's very easy if we don't understand a verse properly, if we're trying to sort of meditate on it and think about how to apply it and pray about it, just go off on wild tangents, basically, about what it might mean. Um, They say, no, make sure you've done the work of study, understand it first well, if you're meditating on, what you want to do is meditate on biblical truth that we've grasped through serious study, not just making stuff up. I think the Puritans would have been really confused. We talk about devotional Bible studies, don't we? And devotional Bible reading. And I don't want to be unkind, but basically what that means is just random thoughts based on a verse. They would have thought that would be really weird. They wouldn't want to separate the idea of rigorous study from... Um, from change and from affections and from emotions and from life and from prayer. 
I think that separation is often really unhelpful. And so what, you look at people doing rigorous study and think, oh, they're, they're crazy and cerebral. But wouldn't it be so much better if we really, really studied hard and then took that to God and changed and thought about how it applied? Those two things, the Word and the Spirit, go together. The better we understand, the more we'll change, the more uh, we'll live for Jesus. So I put this verse, that verse on the sheet because we had a sermon on it this morning. I think I understand it relatively well. I hope you understand it okay. It wasn't too unclear this morning. Um, open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6, actually. Because... Puritans say do it in context. And just to finish, we'll do a little quiet time on Matthew 6.33, as the Puritans would have done it. It's on page 971. So we've heard this preached. We sort of understand it, I hope. 6 verse 33. So what do the, what do the, the um, Puritans say do next? Well, they talk about cogitation. That's another word for thinking. Again, very plain, very simple. Uh, so what, what this is about is thinking about a verse or a passage or a truth from every conceivable angle. So here, let's have a think about 6 verse 33. We'll just work through the verse really slowly. Okay, so it says, seek, seek. Okay, now, I know from my study that in verse 32, it's the same word, as run after, that's the rigorous study coming in. The pagans run after, seek all these things. What are those things? Their clothes and food and drink and the things of this world. So I'm not to seek that, but I'm, uh, I'm to seek his kingdom. And seeking, seeking for the pagans is something strenuous. It's something that's very active verb. They're running after it. Okay, I'm told I'm going to run after, seek righteousness. So am I going to think, am I actually, is that me? Am I seeking righteousness? Am I running after it? Is it something I think about a lot? Is it something I review myself on? Do I ever sit down and think, I wonder if I've been seeking righteousness today? Or am I just sort of passive in my pursuit of righteousness? I think I'm probably passive a lot of the time. I think I'm just going to get more godly just by chance. Jesus says, seek it. So I've got to seek it. That's something to think about and pray about it. Um, it says, seek first. Uh, that means it's got to be my highest priority. Um, that's the problem in the passage, isn't it? That people are treasuring the things on earth. And that's their highest priority. Their hearts are set on it. Jesus says, make his kingdom and his righteousness my highest priority. Am I doing that? Or is righteousness something I sort of do once I've done everything else I need to do that day? How could I make righteousness my first priority? What do I need to do? Think about that for a bit. His kingdom, what's kingdom about? Kingdom is about the rule of Jesus. We've seen that in Matthew. He's the son of David. He's the Christ. He's the king. He's the one that is all of God's purposes are, 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 putting, are, are focusing in on. That's who Jesus is. Am I excited about that kingdom? Do I want Jesus to be king in my life? Where are the bits of my life where I'm not letting him be king, where I'm king? And his righteousness, righteousness, he's already said in chapter 5, verse 20, your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he, he outlines what that means. For that. So I could go back over all those sections, couldn't I? I could think through, am I seeking freedom from anger? Am I seeking freedom from lust? Am I seeking my wife so that I don't end up divorcing her? Am I seeking truthfulness? Am I putting truthfulness ahead of, of other things? Do I often lie a little bit to make a story sound better than it? did before, because actually what I really want is people's approval, 
not God's righteousness. Okay, we're like four words in, and I could spend an hour on that, right? And you could just keep going on that. That's what cogitation is. Just thinking through from every single angle, and you might want to pick like one or two, just to really drill down on and think about and, and ask yourself those questions. Third step is soliloquy. This means talking to yourself. We all talk to ourselves anyway, which is great. We should all do it. Why not preach to yourself instead? This is what the Puritan said. Talk to yourself. Speak to yourself Preach yourself. Preach to your own soul what you've learnt in your cogitation. So preach you. Say, listen, Nathan, come on. You know that it's better to live for Christ's righteousness. What are you doing wasting your time looking for the approval of men when you know you have the approval of God? That's ridiculous. Jesus died for you, Nathan. You know, do a bit of that. You can practice your preaching skills, but most importantly, you can speak to your own soul. And then once you've done that, once you've once you've heard the sermon from yourself to your own soul on what you've thought about, from what you've understood, then you can turn that into prayer. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we recognise in some of our older brothers' uh, lives that we've seen today how they have been seeking after your kingdom and righteousness and were not satisfied uh, with anything less and worked hard and suffered and sacrificed for you. Uh, they didn't get men's approval all the time. In fact, some of them suffered horribly. As we look back at them, uh, I'm a little bit ashamed at the way I haven't been seeking your righteousness uh, with the same fervour and the same zeal and the same sense of it being my highest priority. Please, Father, would you help me and help my brothers and sisters here to seek uh, your kingdom and your righteousness. Please, would we see that putting sin to death and living for you is the greatest treasure uh, because it's been given to us. Yeah. Father, thank you that you've given us eternal life freely as a gift. Pray would we treasure that salvation and treasure Jesus and live for him uh, as we see modelled in the lives of our older brothers, the Puritans. Uh, and help us, Father, to sit loosely to the things of this earth uh, and not uh, to treasure them and live for them. Heavenly Father, please would you keep driving us back to your words. Please would your Holy Spirit be very kind to us and speak to us through your words so that we, as individuals and as a church, might order everything, our lives, our behaviour, our very beings, um, to align with your words. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.